Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. If you have uh, your Bible with you, I invite you to go in it to Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. We wrapped up the book of Ephesians last week. Uh, some time ago, we had started a study in the book of Mark, and so we're returning to that. And, and at this point, uh, we're going to return to our regular kind of preaching rotation, which it's been a while with COVID and kind of the, the great disruption of the last three years since we've been on that. So I want to remind us as you're turning to Mark 9 what that is. We'll, we'll spend the first two months uh, of the year looking at an Old Testament book, and we'll just cycle through that. Uh, and then we'll do the next two months in, a new, t- in a, a new Testament book. Right now we're looking at Mark. And then we'll have kind of a, a, a topical textual series for the next two. And then we'll start back over. So every two months uh, we move from Old Testament to New Testament to a series that we're going to, to look at. And that's how we'll continue. The, the session decided it was time to, to get back to our regular kind of regularly scheduled program. And so we're picking back up in Mark chapter 9. Let's read God's holy and inspired word once again. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Most gracious fathers, we come once again to your word. I ask that you would add your blessing to this reading of your word that you would strengthen me now by your spirit, that I may preach for your glory and for the good of your people. Father, would you give me words that I may proclaim the gospel boldly as I ought. Illumine our hearts and minds, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a little bit since we've been in the book of Mark, so I want to very quickly kind of set the scene of of what's going on and kind of how we've gotten to this uh, point of argumentation in the story. So if we go back to the the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus, for the first time in Mark, foretells his death and resurrection and says, hey, this is what's going to happen. And then he gives his disciples this call to discipleship, uh, the, the, the one that we're familiar with, that deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. That that's what the Christian life, that's what discipleship looks like. After that, they, they have the story, Mark has the story of the transfiguration where Jesus and, and these three kind of inner disciples, if that's a fair way to think about him, go up on the mountain and Elijah's there and Moses there and it, it's covered in glory and, and they have this incredible experience and Jesus instructs them once again. While they're up on the mountain, the rest of the disciples are, are unable to cast out this demon uh, that this person has. And, and they puzzle at why. And Jesus says this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And, and Jesus is able to cast out this demon. 
They, they go on their journey. They, they've been up far in the north country in Caesarea Philippi, which is, which is way up north, way up uh, past the Sea of Galilee. And, and they're journeying back south at this point, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And, and they come uh, on, on their journey. They're, they're passing through Galilee, and Jesus again foretells his death and resurrection. This is what's going to happen to me. The disciples don't get it. They don't understand. Mark says in, in chapter 9, verse 32, that they, 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 were, they didn't understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. And so instead, they continue on their journey to Capernaum, a little bit further south, and, and, and they're now down by the Sea of Galilee, inland a little bit. And, and, and Jesus notices that, that along the way, they've been having a discussion amongst themselves talking about things, trying to to figure out something. And so Jesus asked them, what was that discussion? And of course, they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest. After hearing Jesus talk about his death and resurrection these two times, after seeing him exalted in glory, so to speak, at the transfiguration, after seeing him be able to cast out the demons and them be unable to, they're arguing about who is the greatest. As I said a minute ago, they're, they're journeying south. They had been up in Caesarea Philippi on kind of a, a retreat, and, and they're journeying back down. And Jesus at this point is, is kind of, he, he has set his sights on Jerusalem. He's going to die. In, in Mark, it's a, a quick story. By the time we get to chapter 11, we're at the triumphal entry. And, and that's where they're headed. They're headed south, and Jesus is beginning to instruct them, this is what's going to happen when we get there. I'm going to be killed, and I will rise again. Go back to to chapter 8, verse 31. He puts it this way. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Chapter 9, verse 30, we we see basically the same thing. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So they're on their way for Jesus to to be murdered on the cross in in our place, for the atonement to take place, for for the, the Messiah to suffer this last time for his people's sin. That's what Jesus has his sights set on. The the will of God that he might be glorified through the redemption of his people. And and we know from from the rest of the story, from the the prayer in the the Garden of of Olives. Olive Garden always throws me off. I'm sorry. Uh, We we know uh, from, from... from the prayers there, we know that Jesus wasn't just like, yay, this is going to be awesome. We, we know that, that, that this was a burden for him. He was struggling, sweating like drops of, of blood, asking, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it. But if not, your will be done. Jesus was aware of the suffering that he was going to face. But his sights were decidedly set on Jerusalem because he had come unapologetically, unwaveringly to do his father's will. That was why he was here. 
And his father's will was the redemption of his people. So we've got this incredible contrast between what Jesus is on his way to do and what's on his mind and what he's processing and what he's announcing to the disciples. This is what's going on. This incredible contrast between Christ and his approach to the kingdom of God. Give up everything to have it. Sell everything to buy the field and dig up the pearl. And the disciples who, who want to have this conversation about who is the greatest. And, and we, when we went through Matthew, I, I made the point that in the context, we can probably imagine something about how this conversation went. Three of them had just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, so they can easily get a leg up on everybody else. Look, we got to see the glory of God. We just got to hang out with Moses and Elijah. Y'all couldn't even perform a simple miracle that required prayer. Y'all are out of the run. It's now down to us three. And of course, James and John can easily get a leg up on Peter. Peter, yes, you were there, but you missed the entire point. You wanted to build tents for everybody and stay and hang out. You're out of the running. And we laugh because it sounds silly, right? And in the context of, of everything, of Jesus announcing his death and resurrection, in the context of, of what we know, that they're hanging out with the very Son of God, arguing about who's the greatest. In the context of, of Jesus having set his sights on Jerusalem, that he might do the Father's will, even though it's going to cost him his life, this argument is utterly ridiculous. Y'all are going to argue about who is the greatest. But here's the problem with too quickly dismissing that reality as silly and, and kind of like, how could they? The problem is we ask the same question every day. And we angle every day for the answer to be me. I'm the greatest. We do this in our families, we do this in our marriages, we do this in our churches, we do this at work, we do this in every context. We want to be noticed. We want to be exalted. We want to be seen, we, we want to be praised, we, we want to be lifted up and everybody to say, look at them. Look how absolutely incredible this thing is that they've done. Can you even believe it? And for some of us, for many of us, our greatest nightmares, like, like actual nightmares that we have at night, have to do with us being revealed as not the greatest. I can't tell you how many times I've had the, these dreams that I wake up from so happy that I'm not actually standing in front of all of my preaching heroes unable to preach a sound sermon. Because that's what I've just been dreaming. I got to church. The slides didn't work. I'd forgotten to write a sermon. Like, I'd forgotten my Bible at home. I wasn't even wearing the right clothes to preach in. 
And like, and Ligon Duncan is sitting there and, and R.C. Sproul is sitting there and, and Chris Miller, my mentor, is sitting there and, and all these people. And, and I'm just like, uh, uh, you know, and I'm just sweating. Why? Why? Because in me is the fear of being seen as not great. It's it's deep in all of us. Whatever it is that we do, we want to be seen as great at it. And we've got to at least be honest enough to admit that even in holy activities, like preaching, we're a mixed bag, aren't we? We're not pure in our motivation. We're just not. Much less, and, 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 and I get that we've got to be careful with the sacred-secular distinction and, and all of that, but, but in our everyday work. We, we want to be seen by our co-workers, our colleagues, as the greatest. We want to be seen by our spouse. We, we want them to know that, that other people would be so happy and so blessed to have a spouse like me. I don't understand what your problem is. We want to be seen as the greatest in everything we do. We have this deep, selfish ambition in us. And now listen, we we do have to be careful. As I mentioned to the kids, we should pursue excellence in all that we do. We should, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. And that means doing it in a way that honors Him. That means pursuing excellence in it. That means not being lazy in our work. It does mean all of those things. We should work hard at the work that He gives us to do. Absolutely. But notice... What Paul is saying in that passage in 1 Corinthians 10. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, he doesn't say, he doesn't finish that, do a really good job at it so that people will notice. He he doesn't say work to excel so that you make it to the top. He says whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's why we exist. Our our catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? It's the one question that that, that we all know. Well, that and apparently the Heidelberg Catechism, we know that one too. We we proved this morning. And and with Rob, I'm very proud of y'all. It makes me feel really good as a minister, like I'm a really good minister because most of y'all knew the Heidelberg Catechism without looking at it. Perfect Sunday to get that lesson, right? But our catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. That's why we exist. Not that we might be glorified. Not that we might be exalted. Not that people might make much of us. But that they might make much of God. That they might make much of our Savior. So we've got to be careful with with how we process this. We can honor God in pursuing our work with integrity and excellence and and seeking to, to do good work. 
That glorifies God. Whatever it is that that your vocation is, that God has called you to, you can glorify Him in that by doing your job well and, and pursuing excellence in what you do, but not for your glory, for His. And that's the kicker, isn't it? That's the kicker. We want to do good because we want to be seen. And here's the other kicker that that we have to deal with and and admit about ourselves. When it comes especially to religious activity, we are so good. It's shocking how good we are at twisting our motivations to sound right. Bruce Bogus, a a professor at uh, uh, RTS, he says this in an article that he wrote on ambition. He said, we cannot esteem worldly success without neglecting godliness and overlooking spiritual maturity. Worldly success is not a bad thing, but it is not to be confused with being above reproach or enjoying a good reputation. And it may indicate little more than selfish ambition, the disease of greatness. In ministers and congregations, it may even dress itself in claims of kingdom growth, public witness, administrative acumen, evangelistic fruitfulness, entrepreneurial spirit, and so on. These are all highly desirable objects, but sin can twist each one into a pious-sounding cover for selfish ambition. See, that's the problem. We are a profoundly mixed bag of motivation. Our flesh, as Paul tells us in Galatians, is at war within us. It's at war with the Spirit because it doesn't want us to do what's right. It wants to be satisfied. It wants to be glorified. It wants to be exalted. It wants to be praised. It wants to be comforted. It wants to be made so very much of. And so it's happy to let us pursue these religious activities so long as we get credit, so long as people know what we're doing and praise us for what we're doing. And that's the problem. The, the, the thing that separates selfish ambition from godly, you know, pursuing godliness and, and pursuing his glory and, and ambition that, that honors him is that selfish ambition is always at some level about self-justification and self-glorification. Always. And so as we deal with this reality that we are in fact a mixed bag of motivations, that's the question that we need to be asking ourselves. Why am I doing this? And we need to have the audacity to ask the Spirit to help us understand why we're doing this. To to shine the light into the dark places of our heart that we might see clearly and repent of the sin of this motivation that leads us to this place of the disciples arguing, who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? Are we willing to ask ourselves that question? Why am I pursuing X? Why do I care so much that people know I do whatever it is? 
if there's something in your life that, that you're pursuing and, and, and you, you, you just can't help but let people know, not because you're excited about it, not because you want them involved in it, but just because you want them to know you're doing it, that should give you pause. That should give you pause. We have to be willing to admit that, that like the disciples, we can follow Jesus and be seeking our greatness and be trying to satisfy our own selfish ambition. And like the disciples, we can do this in religious activity. And we can make it all sound good and all sound just right so that no one will say anything to us. But we know what we want is to be praised. We've got to be careful. Jesus provides an answer to the disciples. He asks them, what, what were you talking about? They don't want to say. It's understandable. And he said to them, he sits them all down. He called the 12 out. So, so apparently there was more than the 12 involved in this discussion. He calls the 12 out and he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We, we've had those moments where we perhaps as a child or, or, or maybe you've had this moment in your profession where you've done something that you weren't supposed to do and you knew you weren't supposed to do it, but you weren't sure that anybody else knew that you had done what you weren't supposed to do until your parents asked a question that reveals they know everything. Or, or your boss perhaps asks a question that reveals, oh, he's on to me. She's on to me. They know everything. That's what happened to the disciples right here. What were y'all discussing? Oh, you know, just this, that, weather, you know. Jesus says, let's talk. And then he says, if one would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And you have to think at this point, just collectively, they were all like, like, oh my word, he knows everything. How do we keep forgetting this? But listen to what he said. If you want to be first, if you really want to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't say, oh, you, that's a ridiculous thing to want which is fascinating to me. He doesn't stand up and say, um, hey, I'm the king. I'm the greatest. Trinity, me, second person, son of God, incarnate, I'm the greatest, step off. That's not what he says. He says, if you want to be that, the road to greatness is through serving everyone. Everyone. That's the road there. It's not through serving yourself. It's not through exalting yourself. It's, it's not by, by being the person that everybody loves and, and exalts and glorifies and thinks like, man, since they're here, it's all gotten right. No. It's by being the servant of all. Now remember, 
Remember what Jesus was on his way to do. He was on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of his people. So there's a sense in which he did kind of say, I'm the greatest. Because this is exactly what he was doing. And Paul tells us in that great Christ hymn in Philippians that indeed, in response to this, because he humbled himself and became nothing, because he he gave up everything to come down and humbled himself by being born as a baby and, and then humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, God bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Jesus says the way to greatness in my kingdom is through serving everyone, caring about everyone, humbling yourself before everyone. This isn't the first time he's given this idea of what the Christian life looks like, is it? If we go back to to chapter 8, Verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Is this what your idea of the Christian life looks like? Denying yourself taking an instrument of tortuous death on your back and following Jesus. Looking out, counting others more worthy than yourself. Because for Jesus, and I feel like he's got a pretty good beat on it, that's the normal Christian life. That's what we're called to. Not a life of selfish ambition. Not a life of of being praised as, as great. But a life of reflecting his pattern of life. A life lived with our eyes set on Jerusalem. Journeying to the cross, not where we will die, but where our Savior died in our place. Denying yourself for the sake of others. Our world is bent in on on, on self, on me. Take care of me. Make sure you're good. Make sure you're in a good spot. Jesus says the good spot is denying yourself, humbling yourself, exalting others. That's what we're called to. Annie and I were were laughing last night on on our evening walk. Apparently we're at the age now where we have evening walks. And (laughs) sorry, that's just where we are, babe. but we were laughing, and we're also at the place now where we laugh, we like graph about social media on our evening walk. So we're, I mean, we're just leaning into it all the way. But we were talking about how, you know, at this point, we were just like both just irritated with ourselves and, and, and our social media habits and, and just kind of like, just, just annoying, right? 
And I said, you know, at this point, I get on, and I get on either to be annoyed to find that people have posted something, or annoyed to find that nothing new has been posted since I checked last time. (laughs) Or I get on to see if people liked what I posted. Why? Why do we do that? Because we love to be exalted. We love not to be the servant of all, but the object of adoration for all. The object of of worship, if we're real honest, for all. And and Facebook and and Instagram and, and all of these things have tapped into that at a deep level. At a deep level. If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. Last of all and servant of all. And then Jesus adds a second answer. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not him, but him who sent me. Matthew adds in his telling of this story, he adds also the part that, that Jesus said we're to become like this child. And there's some differences in, in what Matthew and Mark say and how they present this story. But, but just to encourage you, the two accounts are entirely reconcilable. It's not some grand discrepancy in, in the text or anything like that. Uh, but, but when we read the Matthew text, a lot of times we, we think like, oh, we're supposed to become like a child because they're like humble and sweet. And like the only people that say that with a straight face are grandparents and people that haven't had kids. That's it. The rest of us are like, I think we're missing the point of the story. Mark leaves that part out, and he makes it easier for us to see what the point is. Because remember what was going on. The disciples were arguing about who's the greatest. What's going to make us look good? What's going to build us up? Well, guess what decidedly wouldn't in the first century? Taking concern for children. They had nothing to offer you by way of earthly glory. No money, no fame. No, no influential voice, nothing. And Jesus says, whoever receives one of these receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. That's the second part to Jesus' answer. Stop seeking your glory in my ministry. Receive those in my name, who offer you nothing. That's what we're called to do. The church has a habit of thinking, oh, if we could just get X person or Y person or Z person, if we could get them to come to Christ, think of the influence they could have. Think of the platform that would give us. Jesus says that kind of thinking is utterly backwards. Whoever receives a child that comes with no platform, that comes with no glory, that comes with no influence, receives me. The way of the Christian life is a way of humility. 
uncomfortable humility for our flesh. Humility that can only be wrought in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that leads us to this final question. How can we possibly embrace this? How can we impossibly, uh, possibly embrace this teaching that the way forward is denying myself, the way forward is to be the servant of all, to be the last of all, to put myself on the shelf and get after caring for you, that the way forward is receiving those who add nothing to me, who increase my glory, none. How do we get to that position? Only through the cross of Christ. Only by recognizing that in Jesus Christ, we have an, a hope, a security, an identity that cannot be taken, that cannot fade, that, that cannot be undone. That we are perfectly secure in Him. And that whatever glory I may be able to get from this world or from my family or from my ministry or from my job or from my anything is unnecessary and not worth having. It's unnecessary and not worth having. Why? Because I am already secure in Christ to the point that I can give myself up for the sake of those around me. That I can empty myself by the power of the Spirit of Christ working in me, even as Christ emptied himself. And that I can do that without pining for the glory I get because of it. The way to the Christian life goes directly to the cross and never leaves. It clings to the cross of Christ where our hope and security and identity are found that we might set ourselves aside for the sake of everyone that we might serve them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. As challenging as it is to our flesh, it's refreshing because it reminds us that all that we have, all that we need are found in Jesus Christ. And there is such freedom, there is such security, there is such hope, there is such identity in him that I need not pine for the glory of this world. By your spirit, would you teach us to embrace the cross of Christ? That we might walk the road of the cross and not the road of self-glory. We ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.